This is Beyond Belief Sobriety, a podcast for those seeking a secular path to recovery from addiction of all kinds. Hello and welcome to Beyond Belief Sobriety. Today, my guest is a good friend by the name of Ibby A., and she hails from the Washington, D.C. area. She is here to share her story of recovery, and I think you're going to enjoy this episode. It's turned out to be one of my favorites. So without any further ado, here we go with Ibby A. Ibby, how you doing today? Very well, sir. How about you? I'm doing fine. This is about my favorite thing to do is to settle down on a Sunday morning with a cup of coffee and talking to a friend and Alcoholics Anonymous about their story. And as I said before we started, um, you'll be sharing your story like you would at a regular AA meeting. But I will heckle you in between with questions <laughs> and comments and, <laughs> and so forth. So uh, why don't we get started, Ibby, with just a brief introduction about your background and, you know, what, um, when your drinking started, when you knew you had a problem and uh, take it from there. Okay. Thanks, John. I am an alcoholic. My name is Ibby and uh, my sobriety date is 113096. And um, I uh, grew up about eight miles, nine miles from Washington, D.C., and uh, I was the fourth of five children, and my mother was an alcoholic, her father was an alcoholic, and probably their uh, Scottish ancestors were all alcoholics, so we came to it uh, honestly. Um, the, the, the main thing to start with is the fact that uh, I suffered four very dramatic traumas between the age of five and 10 years old. And the first one probably is part of the, I mean, it could be part of the reason why I'm in secular AA today. I was abducted uh, from a bus stop where I was waiting for my father. I was taken into the bottom basement of a church and sexually molested by a stranger. And um, I don't remember much about the uh, particular, I mean, I remember a little bit about the incident and I remember a little bit about going to a lineup in the police station to try to identify the perpetrator, but I don't remember much else Besides that, that was followed up by I had a traumatic brain injury. I walked into a, a baseball field and was hit in the head with a couple of baseball bats. Mm. A kid, a kid oh. was warming up, oh. and um, I don't, I don't remember anything beyond four, five, six hours later waking up in the doctor's office. So. At that point, which was probably 1960, they didn't even take me in for. Uh, an x-ray or anything. They just waited for me to wake up. And then uh, probably the next year uh, or so, um, I had uh, reoccurring nightmares about the abduction and just some real anxiety and nervousness. And one day my mother kept me home from school because of my anxiety. And I was attacked by a neighborhood dog and I had a large portion of my lip taken out. And I uh, got, I was um, 
swallowed a lot of blood and I was taken to the hospital and they wrapped me in a sheet and strapped me down to a table and they put Novocaine in all over my face because they couldn't put the gas mask over me. So I had to get sewn up. I had nine stitches in my lip. I developed mono and I was in bed for, I don't know, three or four months uh, as a result of that and also the healing of my lip because it was a terrible scar and that was the last portion of fourth grade. And when I started fifth grade in September, my best friend in elementary school was a boy named David. And uh, on uh, in the first week of October, um, he had a cerebral hemorrhage and died very, very suddenly. And um, I didn't really understand that. I was, it was the day before his 10th birthday. So I ended up being gifted with a lot of presents that they had bought for him. Aww. So that was between four or five years old and 10. Wow. Ibby. So, so you can imagine the anxiety and the, and the PTSD childhood trauma, uh, biological neurochemical problems that were going on. So when I discovered uh, uh, beer and oh. pot at 13, 14 years of age and, and recognized it as something that would ease my anxiety, yeah. it was, uh, I thought, a miracle. Wow. That's amazing. That yeah, so, it works, doesn't it? In, in well, the beginning, it, it did. It did for quite a while, but it was also that I escaped via any drug that I could possibly find to change the way I felt. And I ran away from home, and I was expelled from one school, and I was asked not to come back to another school. And it wasn't until I found myself in a. a kind of unique private school when I was 16 that I slowed down my drinking and drugging because a, I found books that uh, inspired me, including some uh, esoteric books, uh, the, the Tibetan book of great liberation and some other things. And also I was in a school for uh kids that didn't fit in other places some were developmentally handicapped some were just delinquents they were a lot like me and i saw drugs um and alcohol uh causing a lot of really severe damage so i backed off at that point for quite a while um but i i ran away from home there because really uh i i left there early um just before my graduation uh, because of a relationship that I was having with a teacher. I was 17, he was 27. And, but that was also the uh, beginning of my geographical cure uh, condition, which, which I've had for now uh, 50 years. Um, I get uncomfortable in a situation, so I run. And it, that, that uh, caused me to have I, what I call bi-coastal disease. I, I went back and forth between Virginia and the West Coast my entire life. I've lived in uh, 10 states, and I don't know how many uh, houses, apartments, barns, trailers, you name it, I've lived in it. So, 
um, anyway, the, but one of the first geographics that occurred, I landed in a couple of communes and this was the early seventies. And I started to get an idea that, um, honesty and, um, uh, respect for interpersonal relationships and dynamics. There, there was a lot of this uh, discovery going on in the 70s. The people I lived with in the beginning had just come from Stephen Gaskin's farm. And um, uh, responsibility to the group and investigation and feedback, these were all really important facets of the commune life when I started you couldn't get away with stuff you you had to be honest and open to uh criticism and uh and whether you liked it or not you you were gonna hear about your behavior from other people some of it legitimate some of it just uh other people you know yanking your chain but why that's important is because later on in Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, I I came to see that that line that said defective relations with others have nearly always been the cause of our woes, including our alcoholism. That was a really important gate for me because I needed to understand that it was not just me causing all of the trouble, but the defective relations with others were integrated into my problems and not just caused by me. And also the whole uh, emphasis on the self-survey, the quiet objective aim, the deep, honest search, the accurate survey. Uh, these are, this is a list that I'm reading from that I have gleaned over the years from the literature of AA reinforcing in me that without this accurate self-appraisal, I was never going to get anywhere. Okay. So it went back to my youth, my twenties, where I was in communes with people who were saying, look, you can't act this way and be a, a, a functioning part of our society. You have to look outward. You have to be caring of other people. So that was an important part for me, but it, it nonetheless, the uh, trauma uh, compounded with this la layer of alcohol and drug use kept me in a lot of triggered moments, which led to a lot of failures in relationships and also um, caused me in the first 20 years of my, I have two daughters. I had three failed marriages. I have two daughters by two different husbands. And for the first 20 years of their lives, I was an unreliable uh, alcohol fueled, uh, you know, irresponsible, poor example of a parent. I left them behind. I moved away. I came and got them. I took care of them. I abandoned them or, you know, pushed them off on my parents or their fathers. I, I was a pretty lousy mother. And 
Um, I've been paying for that for the last 27 years of my life. Um, I have re- reasonable relationships with those children now and um, with those uh, ex-husbands, two of whom are still alive. But, um, you know, uh, it, it, it will never be really healed. Um, you don't and, – and the fact of the matter is that because I had a fractured relationship with my mother, I didn't have a maternal uh, model – to use with my own children. And when I did my ninth step uh, years ago with my two children and a therapist, um, that was an important part. Did you have the therapist in the room with you? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I I had to, um, I needed help and um, I had therapy basically in second grade, fifth grade, ninth grade. And then uh, starting when I was 20, I started um, looking for my own therapists. And I have had therapy um, almost, you know, all the way through since then. Uh, I always knew that there was some problem that I could not identify that I needed personal help. Yeah, that is so good. You know, I've never heard of anyone having done that, but it makes total sense, especially under with your circumstances. And it makes total sense. And I just really have to commend you. What a great thing that, that, that you did that. I mean, it just shows the care that you had for the other people that you were making amends to. Well, that and the fact that I, 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 you know, I came to a point where suicide was becoming a real consideration. I was already living with the suicide of two of two dear friends. And I, I, I could not imagine uh, adding to the pain that my children had already suffered by committing suicide. I just thought that that was the most selfish damaging thing that I could possibly think of doing. Anyway, in 1994, I started to get toward the end of my really hard using and my bad behavior and carelessness. I didn't graduate from college. I didn't have a uh, steady career path. I I was a bar fly. I lived on the edge in the demi-monde and barely made my way. But in 1994, I was um, married to a pretty wonderful person and I was uh, abusing that relationship but we moved out to California uh, in, in 1993 back to, to my old neighborhood in California and things got really difficult I was I wasn't sleeping I uh, the the alcohol was not working I came back in 1994 from there to take care of my mother who was dying from uh, cancer and uh, a lot of other damage. And um, I took care of her for a few months. I flew back to California and then I flew back to Virginia the week of uh, the first week of May. And um, I arrived on a Friday uh, that Friday night, I went to my local and uh, 
saw my friends and stayed up drinking and didn't get home. Uh, I came in the house drunk at about one o'clock in the morning and I passed out. And uh, my father woke me up at four uh, because my mother was dying. She was already in, uh, uh, she was already in obvious distress. She was rawling. Her hands were clawed. I went with her uh, to the emergency room in the ambulance and I sat on the floor drunk and watched her die. And, uh, what that really did was, uh, for the next almost, well, nine months, I would drink and I would pass out, go to sleep and I would wake up at four in the morning and I would go through that whole experience again. So, I couldn't escape it and the drinking got worse and the depressive quality of the alcohol got worse until I finally uh, walked into a, a mental health center in 1995 and really had terrible, terrible experiences uh, between, between the May 94 and March of 95. And I went into a medical, to a mental health facility and I'm talking across the desk with this woman about my situation and uh, she slides this form across and she says, well, we need to have your drug and alcohol use history. Could you fill this out? And I look down at this sheet and I slide it back across and I say, okay, yes. Well, and tap, I never took this, but everything else, yeah. yeah. And she picks up the phone and she says, uh, Marge, can you come down here right away? Oh. And I think to myself, oh, man, she's calling for backup. Yeah. And the lady came down and they said, we can't help you until you, um, you know, deal with the drugs and alcohol. And I said, drugs and alcohol are not my problem. I know how to do that. It's the other stuff I don't know how to do. It's the getting along in a marriage. It's the holding a job. It's the paying bills. It's keeping track of my children. Those are the things I can't do. And they said, well, we can't, we can't help you until you sober up. And I said, well, what do I do? And they said, well, you can call the county and they have this CATS program. And, you know, I said, well, I don't have insurance. And they said, well, it costs, you know, I said, I don't have the money for that. Do you have any other big ideas? And they (laughs) said, yeah, you can go to Alcoholics Anonymous. It doesn't cost anything. And I already had a brother, a younger brother who had three DUIs in 20 minutes in 1980. And he came into Alcoholics Anonymous at the uh, behest of the judge. And he had already been sober for a very long time, but he had nothing to do with the rest of the siblings because we were so involved with drugs and alcohol. How about that? So I went to a speaker meeting in uh, my hometown in 1995 and the one of the women that spoke turned out to be a woman that I went to high school with and I did not recognize her at first because the last time I had seen this woman she was in the back of a van with a bunch of bikers and it was bad and then I heard she got involved in a hit and run anyway I saw her and she was a completely different person and I thought maybe this is it. 
And the next night I pulled up in front of a synagogue and there was a couple of biker dudes out front smoking and I spooled the window down and I said, is this a beginner's meeting? And the guy said, we'll make it one. Uh, wow. Boy, so this is I went really in, making me want to cry. I think. It, so wow. I went in there and they did. <laughs> they, 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 that was my first home group. But in 95 and 96, uh, my, I, I white knuckled it. I was so mad. I was so angry. Even, even my children said, mom, if you're going to be like this, maybe you should just go back to drinking. Cause I was an unbearable, unbearably bitchy and uncomfortable person. And I was going to one, at least one meeting a day, every day. Cause that's the only way I knew how to do it. But my husband at the time kept his liquor in the cereal cabinet. So I had to see it every morning when I went for my cereal and I was surrounded by people who were drinking. I had been in a band with my brother for a long, long time. And he fired me because I didn't have any pot and I didn't drink anymore and I wasn't any fun. So in that first part of 1996, my father died. My brother fired me from the band and he started a new band with my husband. And I basically felt like I was abandoned by the three most important men in my life. So in November of 96, they had their first gig without me. And I went to a bar and I had a drink and I drank white wine, which I never really liked. So I knew I wasn't seriously going at it, but I went into a meeting the next day, uh, a big new, a big afternoon meeting. And toward the end of the meeting, I said, I'm an alcoholic named maybe yesterday I had 18 months and today I don't, but I know now today that if I'm going to stay alive, I have to stay in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I got my one day chip on November 30th, 1996. And at the very end of the meeting where they say, are there any burning desires? This old guy in the other side of back of the room. And I say old, like he's now probably my age, you know, but anyway, he said, yeah, I have a burning desire. He said that lady that picked up her one day chip, you know, she helped me cause she, she told something this guy had been drinking, lying to his sponsor, getting his 30-day chip, drinking, feeling guilty about it, lying to his sponsor and feeling shame about that, and drinking and then picking up another chip. And he had been doing it for months. And he said, today I can't do it anymore. And he was in so much pain, it scared me because I thought – that rubber band, that that roundy round, that in and out revolving door will kill me. I cannot do it. So that that also changed me. But um, you know, so I stayed I stayed in. But the thing started to to get to me, John, like like the chapter to the agnostic, which basically starts out by saying, well, uh, you, you people that don't believe in God, we feel really sorry for you. I know. And then it ends up saying, but if you come to believe what we believe, then you're going to be okay. 
but you did have problems with it when you when you read it. You 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 didn't want you you just didn't accept it. I was insulted and I hated it and I hated the dogma. I hated the fact that um, that uh, people told me that I wouldn't stay sober if I didn't say the Lord's prayer. But I hated the other kinds of dogma, too. I hated the man who said in a meeting that if his sponsees told him that they had to go on meds because of their depression or their anxiety, that he would recommend them to just buy a gun and blow them. Oh, Jesus Christ. Can you believe that? No, I can't. And so the dogma bothered me. And, and it bothered me in Virginia, and it bothered me in West Virginia, and it bothered me in Washington State, and in California, and all the places I lived, when, when, when people would lash out at me for not saying the prayer, oh, wow. or for not... You, um, wouldn't, you wouldn't join in on the prayer? No. Okay. I, I, I couldn't understand the fact that we started the meeting by saying we are not allied with any sect, right, denomination, right. politics, organization, or institution. Well, Ibi, I'm marveling at your sense of independence and your courage to resist that stuff. Because well, I didn't do it right away, but <laughs> okay. I mean, it, it just started, you know, it was so contradictory. For sure. And, and also, honestly, you know, when I came back in that day in 1996, the next thing I did beside pick up my 24-hour chip was I found a, a, an actual psychiatrist because I needed really serious help. And, and uh, Dr. Roland uh, saved my life, and she got me on the proper meds. And she helped me with the trauma and the, um, uh, you know, the whole idea of poison. She gave me the book um, we talked about recently, Under the Influence. She saved my life. So um, I knew that there was not going to be just people in AA who were going to be important to me. I knew that that I needed something more than that. And um, you know, I also heard people in meetings say that they had PTSD because their granddads died when they were young. And I thought to myself, well, that was probably really sad, but that doesn't really uh, talk about my level of trauma, which I was not going to discuss openly in a meeting. But I, I, I just, you know, I, I thought to myself, there are things in, in, AA that I really appreciate and there are things in AA and in meetings and in the fellowship that are just BS. And then I started to separate the fellowship from the program. Cause those are two different they things are. to me. They totally yeah. are. Yeah. Yeah, they totally are. So I I I I'm a uh, was a bigger fan always of step meetings and the 12 and 12 rather than the big book and particularly the first 164 pages, which I thought was kind of interesting and kind of archaic right, and had all this right. kind of wacky old language. And then I would read more to the, more to the, or to the chapter to the wives yeah. and I would just throw the book across the room <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just thought. Yeah, that's too Lord. bad. You know, that, that chapter was actually written by Bill Wilson. Lois wanted to write it, but he wouldn't let her. Isn't that awful? It could have been a lot better, I think, had she written it. Absolutely. I, it would have been interesting to see how it would have, how, what it would have sounded like, what it, what it would have read like with, in her language. But anyway. 
Well, it, 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 it just, you know, I couldn't, um, I couldn't go on. And so I had to separate those things. And, you know, I, I'm, uh, I also luckily had some really excellent sponsors, um, three of which are registered nurses and one of which was a registered nurse. She was a licensed professional counselor and a certified addiction counselor. And she put the program in perspective with the other uh, psychological work I was doing. And she was the one who said to me when I was 10 years sober, you have the worst case of untreated PTSD I've ever seen. You really need to, um, you know, work on that as well as your sobriety. But I would not have been able to do any of that work if I'd have still been taking the poison and st- still been um, trying to uh, relieve myself of the delusion that was brought about by the drugs and alcohol. Because I knew, you know, I went on 10-day meditation retreats. I had incredible meditation teachers in California. I had a spiritual life, but all the good that I was doing with that was undone by the poison and the delusion that alcohol and drugs were, uh, you know, covering me with, smothering me with, so to speak. So anyway, um, did that sponsor, um, did that sponsor help you with, um, how did how did she help you navigate the the fact that you didn't buy into the god bit? Well, for one thing, she was a Jew, okay, and she, good she never and she never said the Lord's prayer. She said, she, said, she said that's not my prayer. I love I, it. I, I'm just not going to say that. It's just not my prayer. Good for her. Oh, well, boy. she was a very interesting person, um, and she actually was hired to go to Aruba and help. Um, uh, is it Eric Clapton who set up the retreat center there? She, she was, yeah, I think she was hired to be one of the, one of the people that helped um, set that thing up. So she was a very unusual person. She's passed away. She had a heart attack a few years ago, but um, she really, really helped me. And then, and you know, there were other uh, people that I met, through the fellowship who had iconoclastic ideas and uh, who, who allowed me space to think on my own. Um, uh, but they were, you know, the two out of 10 and the rest of the eight were, you better say the prayer or you're not going to stay sober. That is so interesting. Like you, you definitely had some issues. I mean, you, you, you were able to, you were, you were able to u- utilize the program in a way that was helpful for you although there were some problematic um, parts of it. And then the same thing with the fellowship, you had to navigate that as well because there were some really great people who were helping you, but there were also some people to stay away from and to know the difference is sometimes not so easy. I think discernment is probably the key to my whole ability to do this thing is, is um, you know, I, I, I went to a woman's meeting for years uh, in Northern Virginia because all the women went there and that was what you were supposed to do at seven o'clock on a Tuesday night. And I would come out of that meeting every Tuesday night, just, uh, you know, nauseated. And and at one point I just said to them all, you guys are not qualified to 
uh, diagnose my problems. Uh-huh. I go to a professional for that. So I wish you all would just stop getting up in my grill about <laughs> who I am and what I do. Yeah. And finally, somebody said to me, well, if you don't feel better after the meeting is over, why don't you just stop going? Okay. And I was like, wow, I can stop <laughs> going? <laughs> and I did. I stopped going. <laughs> I mean, uh, those old bats, yeah. you know, I called it the, I called it the wall of judgment. I would come oh, in the God. door and they would be sitting there all, you know, dour with their arms crossed, just ready to oh, get God. up in your stuff because you weren't doing the program the way they told you to. <laughs> so that dogma again, you know, um, one of the other things that my wonderful, uh, nurse, um, uh, sponsor told me was that she said um and this was probably in 2002 ibby uh codependency is an epidemic in alcoholics anonymous we you think you can cure the other guy you know everybody is just fully versed in what the other person should do but they're unable to see themselves really clearly so you got to watch out for that don't don't get in there. And that eventually caused me to do a lot of work in the codependency area. And it eventually also caused me to spend a year in ACOA. But um, what it really uh, said to me was that I was going to, again, have to practice really um, serious discernment, you know, and, and in the literature, I was going to have to read along with everybody in the big book meetings and in the 12 and 12 meetings, but I was going to have to filter that stuff through my Buddhist Taoist leanings and change the language so that I understood the principle, not the verbiage or the dictates or the dogma during this time when you were doing this when you were figuring out your own language were you even aware that there was such a thing as um, AA meetings for agnostics and atheists not until I got to uh, Washington State in 2006 2006 I found my first we agnostics meeting and uh, in Olympia Washington and they they um they really really helped me um i was still going to regular meetings but i w- was finding people who were uh you know able to like you know translate as i say uh um to to other ways of thinking um but also, you know, I found uh, Zen and the Art of Recovery, and I found um, uh, there's another book. Well, the the Ernest Kurtz book I mentioned before, The Spirituality of Imperfection. Yeah, yeah, and Not God. And um, uh, there's another one that I can't think of right now. So I I was looking, and, and one breath at a time, uh, there were other books popping up right you know along the way so the reading was really important for you yeah yeah absolutely but so was service i mean i I spent three years going into a tribal jail um uh and uh you know i was in adcm and i was on the area 
literature committee and I went to big conferences and, you know, I I love service. Um, It's, it's hard to do now. Um, And I think part of it is that, again, I don't, the whole um, thing about sponsorship is a little bit of a, of a, tricky area for me too. Yeah, it is, isn't it? You know, it's, it's interesting because there are good experiences. Like you had a good experience with one, but there are also some experiences that are so damaging that are so awful that I, you have to be so careful. You, you, a person has to be really, really careful. And the problem I have with the whole sponsorship thing is that when a person first gets into AA, they are at their most vulnerable p- in their whole life, you know, they're so vulnerable to being taken advantage of by somebody who thinks that they can straighten them out, you know, or, and I've just, I've just heard too many stories of people in that vulnerable state being taken advantage of, of some hardcore sponsor, you know, that, 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 that tries to run their life. And, but then on the other hand, I hear great stories like yours, you know, with the lady who helped you so much. So it's really a tough thing. I, I always, whenever I talk to someone who's new in the program, I always, if they talk about sponsorship, I do, I do ask them to go into that very carefully. You know, I, I, I just, I'm just really, cause, because I don't know their circumstances. I don't know the people in their group. I don't know any of that kind of stuff, but it's just, you've got to be careful. Well, that, that, that same woman that told me that, um, you know, that, uh, codependency was a problem, uh, you know, and, um, I, when I moved to Washington State in 2006 and I was about to celebrate my 10th year, the first meeting that I went to uh, in, in, in Olympia, I said, you know, I'm new here. I'm an alcoholic named Ibby. I, you know, I'm about to celebrate 10 years and, I'm, and I just moved into town. So I'm going to be looking for, uh, you know, home group and, and whatnot. And then... Uh, Somebody else, um, another woman spoke up and said, you know, I, 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 I'm whatever her name was, Alicia, and I have 13 days. And at the end of the meeting, Alicia was surrounded by women giving their phone numbers to her and no one approached me. Okay. So I thought to myself, this is where the ego of getting a sponsee becomes a, a, a bad thing, okay? So th- those ladies that surrounded her, they wanted the feather in their cap of, oh, I got a new sponsee. I'm going to, you know, get her through the steps. But that woman over there, she's got 10 years, so we don't need to worry about her. She's not a, she's not a uh, you know, a feather in the cap. And I was shocked, really. Um, you know, I made my way and I got my sponsors there. But um, that's when I, start, you know, continued to see the danger in it. The other thing is that I've sponsored a couple of people and and none of them stayed sober. And honestly, I don't think I have the wisdom to to work with a sponsee. I can't, I can't impart the dogma cause I don't believe in it. And I, and I can't uh, work the steps with people because I think there's some really funky stuff in there. 
And uh, so I don't even raise my hand when people say, are there people willing to sponsor? No, I'm kind of that way too, Ebby. I, uh, our group, um, some years ago, they decided that they wanted people to do that. They wanted to raise their hands if they were available to be a sponsor. And I really didn't like that. Um, cause I was very reluctant. I didn't want to not raise my hand because I'd look like a, some selfish bastard. But in the other hand, I, I knew that, um, I probably wasn't what most people are looking for. And what I find is that even in secular AA meetings, when someone is new, they really want, they want to be a lot of people. I just, I don't, I can't generalize, but a lot of people, it seems to me, they want to have some specific instruction and direction of what to do. And that's not me. I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. And my view of the steps too is so different than even a lot of people in the secular AA meetings. And that I see the, I see the steps more as an organic process, things that will happen kind of naturally, but you, but they, they can be used to guide you through that process. So to a large extent, if someone's really, really new, the best thing I think that they can do is go to meetings, um, talk with people, um, have established relationships, establish a network of people who'll support them in the sobriety and not worry so much about what I need to read and what step I need to do. Because all that stuff from when I look back at my experience, all that stuff kind of happens. You know, you've heard in meetings before saying the steps worked me before I worked the steps, that kind of sort of happens. It, it kind of gets absorbed into your your fiber and your being. And then there are some practical things that you actually do. But, yeah, so I, I have a really hard time that. In the beginning, because people want to do something, they say, what what do I do here or there, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just saying, you know, just go to meetings. And it, and it sounds like it's, it's like so – it's too simple. It's like you don't drink, you go to meetings, and we talk, whatever. You know, that's about it. Well, the <laughs> other thing is this. Uh, you when you go into that room and you look at those steps that are hanging on the wall, the whole middle part of that thing is all about damage. It's all about your wrongs, your shortcomings, your failures. Really strange have, language too. You, you have know. to make amends for stuff and it just makes you out. People get stuck between four and ten where they're just concentrating on their bad negative energy parts and and it's 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 really not productive so what i tell people is you know i got stuck in the middle of there and i got you know six and seven i couldn't get out of for years but what finally happened was i got to 12 and i had a spiritual awakening not the god kind but some kind and realized that what was more important was the first tradition which said personal recovery depends upon aa unity in other words stop thinking about yourself god damn it and think about the rest of the people in the room and the rest of the people who are suffering from alcohol poisoning that's the point so, you know, but the, to get bogged down in the steps where it's all, you know, I got to dr- drag up every, you know, somebody said to me, hey, it's not an immoral inventory. You know, you don't have to just list every bad thing you ever did. I mean, it, it's just so. My first impression of those steps when I saw them hanging on the wall, and I agree with you, those middle ones, 
to me, and I wasn't, I wasn't consciously absorbing this in my brain. I wasn't really, it didn't really register to me what I thought about it. I think my initial reaction was that's weird, weird. It's something like that, you know, (laughs) Uh, you know, there's something weird about it, you know, that, but, but, but what it was is the, that language of defects and um, all the, all this weird stuff that I, and, and, and worded in a way that I I wasn't used to talking. um, I just found weird. Um, the one that there's a couple things that did help me though, very, very early on the first step. And now some people do have a problem with the word powerless, but I, I didn't for me, but it said, you know, that to me seemed to be a perfect description of my life at the time that I was powerless. I, I was powerless mm-hmm. over alcohol and my life had become unmanageable. Now I didn't see that as me being powerless over everything, but I was powerless over alcohol and my life became a perfect description of where I was. The rest of the stuff I like, okay, that's weird. Then I saw that third tradition too, that the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. Those two things were right next to each other. And I, and I thought, yes, that saves me because my problem was I was, I was young and all this time I was, I wouldn't believe I was an alcoholic and what that third tradition did for me is that, that it just took that off the table. It was like, I don't have to worry about that crap. All I need is a desire to stop drinking. And I know as hell, if I keep drinking, I'm going to keep going to jail and have this horrible life. So I had that. And that that's that's the basis that saved me. But you're right. Looking at all that stuff in the middle was like weird. I didn't know what even to make of it. It was just like weird. I didn't know what to do well, with it. <laughs> I, I don't know about you, but I didn't. I, I mean, the last thing I needed coming in the door was to have more of my failures smashed into my face. You know, I know that. And I've talked to, uh, it's more common for women to say that. Yep. But I think that was true for me too. I had very, very low self-esteem. Right. My weird, my thing though, was that I, I conformed. I just, I made myself into what I thought they thought I should be. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and so I, I just was, and I'm able to do this, Evie, because, um, and you might have even experienced this a little bit moving so much back and forth, but I grew up as an army brat. So as a little kid, I learned how to adapt to new environments and kind of um, become what I thought these people in this new environment would expect me to be so that they would like me. Mm-hmm. And so I did the same thing in AA. I just said, okay, this is a new world for me. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to become what I think they think I should be. And so I kind of, and, and, and this is all on a very subconscious level. So I start doing all this stuff. And so like, you know, Bill Wilson, I have nothing in common with him. I, he, he, I'm not his personality type, but he writes that big book in a way that we're all these ego driven power driving, you know, people and I wasn't, I, I was someone who had never achieved anything in my life, had low self-esteem, felt like crap. You know, um, it was amazing. I hadn't killed myself by the time I got there. And, and yet I was talking and sharing in meetings like I was some kind of a, you know, <laughs> Bill Wilson type person. I wasn't, but anyway, so it took me a long time to get over that. But the women in particular, and I can understand that, especially when so many have experienced sexual trauma and, um, Oh, just the society that we live in and the world and the word powerless really is a, a problem. And, um, so is all the other, um, the, um, you have to, you have to, you're, that, that you're an egomaniac, that you're, you know, all these self-centered, all these things can really be difficult, if not impossible to agree with and work with. 
Well, it's true. So, so, um, I, I, it's, yes, we agnostics, uh, in 2006 really helped me. And honestly, um, you know, I, I drop out of meetings, going to meetings because I really don't like the, um, emphasis on the God thing. And when I say in the meetings that I'm not a Christian and I don't adhere to the capital H, he sky God thing, I get some pretty serious blowback and disdain from people. And I really, really don't care anymore. It used to hurt me, and but it, it doesn't bother me anymore at all. But here's two things um, uh, before I go that are really important to me. This is um, uh, from the from the first tradition, where it, it's talking about um, uh, conformity and about um, obedience and disobedience. Um, the the first tradition says the AA member has to conform to the principles of recovery. Her life or his life, because it's always his. Yeah. <laughs> his life actually depends upon obedience to spiritual Uh, principles. Okay. Those are my spiritual principles, not the God thing, but my spiritual principles. If he deviates too far, the penalty is sure and swift. He sickens and dies. I agree with that. At first we go along because we must, but later we discover a way of life that we really want to live. And I agree with that. That's the obedient part. And then in the ninth tradition, it says each AA member follows to the best of their ability our suggested 12 steps to recovery. Unless they do, they almost certainly sign their own death warrant. His drunkenness and dissolution are not penalties inflicted by people in authority. They result from personal disobedience to spiritual principles. Again, I had to figure out what my spiritual principles were and um, I can live with those now and I don't need uh, a a guy in a meeting to tell me that what I really need is uh, God and um, this, uh, let's, you know, this is another dogma thing that's really come up lately is this back to basics uh thing you know about this yes i know a little bit about it i've never yeah. personally experienced mm-hmm. it and what well, i'm coming to think ibby is that it, it can be a different experience in different places but overall mm-hmm. it seems to be a pretty dogmatic um approach mm-hmm. yes it, 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 in my experience it was and just just the 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 force of of people saying uh, you're you're not getting the best you can unless you do this. Now the other thing, John, is that you know every now and then in the dark night of my soul, I, I'll think to myself, well, maybe my life isn't going better because I'm not praying, and you know that occurs to me, and I don't know who I would pray to. Uh, and maybe I'm missing out and maybe I'll regret it when my, uh, you know, consciousness leaves my body. I don't know. But 
uh, for me personally, the adhering to spiritual principles uh, is a is a here and now behavior, not a hereafter behavior. So that that's sort of been what I what I'm living with now. And you know, uh, I I thought along the way in the last 25 years. Well, you know, maybe if I just uh, you know go to church and uh, you know buy buy into this and change my way of thinking, maybe I'll be happier and I'll get the better car and I'll find a better husband. And uh, you know, uh, it just that's not my spiritual principle. I I can't get there. So I have to live happily in the here and now and do the best I can uh, and not um, be so worried about the afterlife Um, and not be so worried about um, conforming to what other people think. Yeah. That's my, that's my big freedom. And when you talk about the praying, so, you know, I, um, I was doing, I was doing that praying thing for a while. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, it took me, it took me 25 years, Eddie, to realize I was an atheist. So, cause I, I I grew up in a household that we didn't have anything to do with religion. We didn't go to church or anything. It was, it was not, it wasn't even, I I didn't anything about it. So, um, but I also had this experience growing up, um, uh, you know, moving around a lot and trying to fit in and so forth. So, um, when it came, when it came to, um, praying, I, they told me to do it. So I did it, you know, and I, I, I knew I, I, I didn't feel right doing it. I thought it was bullshit. And after a while it became kind of like, I'm kind of obsessive compulsive to a small degree. And so I got really compulsive and obsessive about it. And part of it was that the group that I went to, they'd always talk about the drill and that the drill was being that you get down on your knees in the morning and you ask God for a day of sobriety. You go um, home, you read the big book, call your sponsor. And then at the end of the day, you get on your knees and thank God or whatever. And that was the drill. And I swear to God, every single time I went to a meeting for many decades, they'd always talk about that drill. And so I stopped doing it. I stopped doing it like, um, I think I was after 10 years of sobriety. I stopped praying. And what happened is, oh, a lot of different things happened, but I just stopped praying. I wasn't praying. But when I go to meetings, I didn't tell people I wasn't praying because I felt like, I felt like it. I was going to, they're going to come down hard on me, you know, because, because I already, to me, I re I I concluded it was bullshit Mm -hmm. and I felt free not to have to do it. But then I, after getting into a secular AA meeting, Oh, it was so nice to have that off the table. Something I don't have to think about anymore or feel guilty about or have to talk about. I don't give a shit if somebody prays or not, but I don't do it. I don't want to do it. And don't make me feel guilty for not doing it. And that's that's how I feel about it. So, but I feel sorry for uh, people in AA that don't have that freedom where, you know, they're not prayers and they're being told that they have to. Well, imagine, (laughs) imagine being molested in the back of a church as a child and then finding out that you had to go back to the church to get uh, uh, any kind of relief from uh, this, you know, alcohol disease, which I inherited. I mean, they don't make an, uh, an antidepressant pill big enough to counteract alcohol in my system. I just believe that it would have to be the size of a loaf of bread. So I don't need alcohol. I don't think about it at all. But I also didn't want people in the in the fellowship telling me that I either did it 
their way or I was going to suffer. Um, so I, I, yeah, it's actually really relieved me of a lot. Now my, my current, uh, the woman that I currently call my sponsor, I have one, uh, in here and one in California, but, but I use lots of people in sponsor type ways, you know, the current one I have locally is, is actually a reverend, uh, has a, you know, degree from a, a college and, um, but I don't talk to her about my agnosticism. I don't talk to her about her religion. It's just not a part of the discussion. And uh, I, I'm lucky for that. But I also notice that, man, you know, we, we all kind of need to step back from this uh, giving unsolicited advice thing, you know. That, that's a really big part of it for me. And um, I, I spend time in Al-Anon and have for the last 15 years because I don't want to give people advice. And if I want advice, I'll ask for it. But otherwise, we really need to assume competence on the part of other people around us. And th that's a respect that I really come to believe is critical. Yeah. yeah you you ahead. are good at what you do. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. You are incredible. This has just been an amazing episode. Uh you had me in tears uh in so many places with your story. Um I, I, I have a visual image of those bikers telling you, yeah, we'll make this a beginner's meeting. And and everything that you had to navigate is just so incredible that you were able to get through it. And it's helpful that you were able to lay it out in this way because Ibi, you're not alone. This is how people experience AA, you know, and it's just so great to be able to for you to share your story like this because i know it's going to help people people are going to listen to this episode and say yes that's me that's that's exactly what i needed to hear so thank you for having the courage to come on here and share your story with me i loved talking with you it was just um a, a great experience so thank you thank, thank you so much and i hope i see you around um you know what i i kind of miss out a little bit because i don't go to so many of the online meetings so i'm gonna have to um get connected again with people are there any online meetings that you go to that you that you particularly like or do you are do you even get involved with those? No, I do. There's uh the the uh afternoon secular meetings I have I have appreciated. Um I, it's it's spotty for me because I'm uh I was working from home. Now now it looks like I'm going to be going back to work in person, so that's going to be more difficult, but um you know, offline, I, I, I'd like to share my number with you so that we could keep in touch. Um, your work is really invaluable um, for spreading the good news, which is that you you can be a happy, productive person in AA without uh, buying the God as we understood him thing. And uh, people really need that. Uh, and so I, I, my great appreciation to you, John, for the work uh, that you do. Well, thank you. All right. So, I'm going to put my number in chat. See okay. you later. That's another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety. Thank you for listening. 
If you'd like to support our podcast with recurring monthly contributions, head on over to patreon.com slash beyondbeliefsobriety or become a member of our YouTube channel. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, then visit our website beyondbeliefsobriety.com and click on the donate button. I do appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again real soon with another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety.